0: Sandy Swallow. I'm Okalala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. I've been an artist for over 30 years and through my artwork have portrayed my heritage. Now I'm starting a brand new venture called Lakota Link and I'm here to share with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lakota Link. Greetings from the home of the Seven Council Fires. Land of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, bringing stories old and new of Lakota values, courage, respect, wisdom, to name a few. Good morning to my Lakota Link listeners and I have a very special person to introduce to you today, and his name happens to be Walter Little Moon. And Walter and I became acquainted actually in a a very unique way. We became acquainted that we were related through DNA testing on Twenty Three and Me. That's been really fun to find new cousins and and new relatives and. And Walter happens to be one of my famous relatives that I didn't even know I was related to. (laughs) And so this is Walter Little Moon. He is Okalala Lakota. And and Walter, can you kind of explain where you grew up and who your folks were? Okay,
1: my name is uh, Walter Little Moon. My mother, her name was Rosa Ironteeth. And she was born, uh, I think, out in the Rocky Ford area of Pine Ridge. And uh, our father, as far as I know, and what little information I could find, was that he came in from the east. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if they met the east of the reservation or east of the United States, I'm not sure there, mm-hmm. but uh his name was Little Moon, and I know he hung around a lot with the Northern Cheyennes. There was a couple of books that I come across with his name in it, but he had the name Little moon, and my father his name was Joseph Little Moon, but his uh Original name, before they made him change it, was uh, Iron Heart. That was the name that he grew up with. But he had to change it because of uh, the laws that was established by the Bureau of Indian Affairs that we had to live under. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And uh, half of my family are uh, full bloods. And uh, the other half are... uh, Half and less. Oh. They have more white blood than uh, we do. Oh. And the funny part of it was, uh, our our mother, she couldn't take the name or live under the name of Harvey. She had to keep her name Iron Teeth. That was the law. Uh, that was the, one of the rules of uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. You couldn't change your name to a white white name. Oh. So their name would have been Harvey, but uh, the great grandmother she married uh, George Harvey oh. in the Rocky Ford area. Then there was some Martinez's involved in that, and uh, they live from they're from the Kyle area. But Martinez, the name didn't come from Mexico; it came from Spain. Mm. So that, there's a big difference there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, there's one more, and at the moment, I can't even think of it. Just at the age where I can remember something, then I can forget the next minute.
0: And tell us, of tell us, <laughs> the Walter, curse of <laughs> tell me, how old are you?
1: I'm 78 years old.
0: Now. Oh, okay, that's that's a good age. Uh, yeah. I, I know you had... Uh, shared with me a little bit about the word Lakota and what it means. So would you mind sharing that?
1: The word Lakota basically translates uh, into human being. Mm -hmm. And it's used in other purposes. But uh, in order to have that as part of uh, your identity, that you become a human being. And there's certain steps that you go through as you're growing up. And there's no there's nothing written down like that. Everything is done in order to develop uh, a human being so you've been so you can be called a uh, Lakota. And uh, there's uh six other bands besides uh, uh Ogallala. they're scattered all over the on the eastern part of uh, South Dakota. And they all have different... Uh, there's some that speak with an N, some with an L, some with a D. And uh, we can understand them to a certain point. And sometimes uh, the pronunciations of the words are different, but the meaning is the same. So it's not a, a language that's hard to figure out. It's just... Uh, Understanding that whatever you talk about in Lakota, I don't care which band you come from, but when you speak Lakota, the language belongs to you as an individual. Meaning that um, it's not a community thing, or it's not a district thing, or it's not a reservation thing. We all speak Lakota, but we all speak with uh, individuality individuality, was a very strong accomplishment, which is the Lakota, there's the Lakota wheel, there's the Lakota Man, Wichasha. So in order to be a Lakota, you had to understand a lot of things about yourself, even down to the idea of uh, religion. We didn't have uh, the so-called religion, but we had ceremonies that were designed to find out if you can under uh, if you can identify or learn how to identify what is uh, your understanding of what the Creator is. Many shapes, many different forms, but they're all part of uh, life. We call it the brotherhood of life. that's 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 our understanding of it, but we all understand it individually. Like today, you know, you're taught in the classroom. You've got maybe 30 students in the classroom who are taught the same thing day after day. But in Lakota, you're taught by your mother or your father. So those are things uh, that are very important to uh, remember. So all of these come under the heading of Lakota. So when you accomplish that, somebody will call you. When you get to that place, that you are now a man, or that you are now a woman. So that becomes part of your name. So that's why you always find the word, we at the end of names. So those are very important. But today, I've got a bunch of brothers. They all have the same name, Little Mona. Mm -hmm. And I've got some, I have one sister and one half-sister. And, uh, no, no, I've got six half sisters. Oh. And they all go by the name of Good Medicine. Oh. And two of them, one, uh, uh, Teresa from Sioux Falls, she went by the name of Little Moon. And also, she went by the name of Catches also. And then my sister, Pauline, she went by Little Moon. So it's very difficult to, uh, uh, address yourself but i call myself the youngest of uh the little moon family Oh okay. that would be me sure so they're all gone now and i'm the only one left
0: oh okay you so know that's
1: a sad thing and
0: yeah it's hard i know um i had just interviewed my first cousin larry brewer and he was telling me, and I did not know this, you know, until the interview, because I didn't grow up right close to my grandparents. But uh, he was saying that my grandpa Ben Mills basically spoke at home in Lakota all the time, and that he was more traditional than I ever realized. So this has been a journey for me to learn a lot of things. And I'm really happy when people are willing to share. And, uh, you know, I had been very interested in Jane's uh, Facebook post where uh, you had shared with her about Wounded Knee in in, uh, 1973 and what your perspective was on it. Can you kind of, for people that don't know, Maybe the younger generation do not realize that Wounded Knee, there in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, was taken over by AIM back then. They had a point. They had a point they wanted to make, and uh, I, I just think it's interesting for people to understand um, these entities. Do you want go? Ahead, do you want to tell them about the entities that were involved?
1: Okay. Uh, As far as uh, information based on uh, American Indian Movement, we knew very little about them out in the districts. And uh, every once in a while, you'll hear something, but it wasn't that important until that February. I remember that day very clearly because my brother just got out of the hospital. He got hit on the head with uh, a two-by-four and kind of knocked him silly, so he had to be in the hospital for a few days. And he came back, and my brother and I went to the hospital, fixed him up and brought him back and took him down to my mother's place. And we just stayed there. Early the next morning, uh, I heard somebody knocking on the door, so I opened the door, and there was a guy standing there I didn't recognize. Riding a horse. And he said, uh, you know, If you go to the store or the post office, the store is open now and uh, everything is free. And if you have any bills there, he said, Don't worry about them. Or whatever. They've been taken care of. And I didn't know what was going on, I, I couldn't figure anything out. Then my brother came up behind me and he said, We better go over and see. So we walked over there in the morning, and the uh, uh, trading post door, the Wounded Knee uh, store, uh, the doors were wide open. So we walked in there, and the whole place was a mess. And it was uh, it was shocking. And there was guys were guys kneeling around in there that I didn't even know. I'd never seen them before, not even on the reservation and that's one of, that was our first experience with the American Indian movement. And they didn't talk to us, and we didn't talk to them. They just said, if you want something, help yourself. It's free. And so we looked around, but there wasn't anything that we needed. Everything good was uh, what they call edible or, you know, on a daily basis. All of that stuff was gone already, you know, like eggs, meat, stuff like that. It was all gone, and everything else was just laying, laying there. And I was scared to touch anything, because <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, and I didn't even know where the owners were at that time. So that's how that whole thing started. And later on in the afternoon, we began to hear stories that the uh, uh, wounded knee was uh, didn't belong to us anymore, but it belonged to the American Indian Movement. And that's how it started, and that's how it went. There were so many things that took place that first week that it was uh, both uh, humiliating, and it was funny, and it was sad at the same time. And then we were trying to find out where the owners were, and I guess they were held prisoners up at the Catholic Church, which was still up at that time. So we decided to go up there and see if we could talk to them. And we got in as far as uh, uh, the back door was open and the front door was all shut up, it uh, was all uh, closed and everything. So when we got to the back door, these two guys came out with a rifle, with their rifles. And they walked up to them and said, What do you want? We really wanted to see the uh, owners of the store. So they didn't appoint it uh Guns at us and hit me right in the middle of the chest with the rifle. Mm. And I backed up and I stopped and I looked at him and he said, you know, nobody's allowed in there. As long as they're there, they're not going to come in. So we went back to the housing area and told my mother what was going on. And she was, uh, she didn't see anything. So that went on, you know, day after day was the same thing. We walked to the store to try to find more information. But there were so many people, and I didn't even know who the leaders were of this, uh, whatever was happening, because I didn't know. And then later on, they told us there was a guy named Russell Means, and there was another guy named Dennis Banks, and uh, there was one more Uh, I can't even remember his name. Dalton Court. And then there was another rumor that came about that his uh, brother was arrested just south of Wounded Knee. He was trying to steal uh, the rancher's truck. And uh, they caught him, and they took him into jail. He was incarcerated at that time. That was one of the rumors that came out of there. But by then, uh, you know, you still can go in and out at that time. And then about maybe a week, a week and a half later, the marshals moved in, or the police, and they blocked the roads. And then the United States marshals uh, showed up. They had their big uh, tanks sitting up on the hills. And you could see those tanks right in the middle of the road. On the north side, and there was another one on the south east side. There was a big tank, and then there was a bunch of smaller ones running back and forth. I guess they were called the APCs, or the personnel carriers. They were just running up and down the roads there. There's an old road that goes uh, the south of Wounded uh, mean where you cross the creek there, and so there was a lot of activities on the on the outside on the outskirts. And shooting didn't uh, start right away. Then every once in a while, you hear somebody shooting a gun or firing off a few rounds. It just, you know, sporadically. Then eventually it got to where there was some heavy shooting in the evenings. I guess they were trying to scare each other, that's as far as I could understand. But any time we walked down the road, we always walked in a ditch just in case, Somebody got trigger happy. And I couldn't understand what was going on. You know, they said they had taken over wounded knee to uh, address what was happening with the tribal council, but that didn't make any sense to me. Because there were marshals in the Pine Ridge. We used to see them go to hitchh- uh, hitchhike into Pine Ridge you know, for the medicine or for whatever necessity that we needed with hitchhike in there. And you see them sitting up on the Bureau of Indian Affairs building had their little uh, machine guns up there, or big machine guns, surrounded by uh, sandbags. And so from what I heard, that they, their planning was to come into Pine Ridge and to address uh, some of their points. I don't even know what they were. Mm-hmm. But when they've seen all of these marshals there at Pine Ridge with the machine guns, that has made a left turn and kept on going down Highway 18, and drove right into Wounded Knee, and that was it. Then we become prisoners, mm-hmm. and uh, so there was a lot of things like that. You know, food finally ran out, water was uh, no ran, uh, ran out. That's Somebody what drank the that's the propane.
0: What, that's what I was wondering about, Walter. Is how how you and your family managed during that time when things had. The food started running out. What did you do?
1: Well, we were okay at the beginning, as that was one of the things that mother did a lot of a lot of the time because she grew up during hard times, and she knew how to uh, you know store away a lot of beans, potatoes, stuff like that, and we had them down in the basement, the commodity. We saved a lot of that kind stuff, and it was just uh, my mother. And my brother got out of the hospital, and then uh, Ben and I, so there were just four of us there, and then uh, I think it was uh, maybe that first week or first few days, my sister came. She was living in Nebraska, but she arrived with her husband and then uh, their son. They, they all drove in there from Nebraska, and they, uh, uh, they were worried by their mother. <coughs> So they uh, they drove in there, so we just uh, tried to make planning on what how long we would stay like this. And and then, then we started moving into the basement when uh found out that the propane was drained. You could hear the—I well, mean, you could smell the propane, but you couldn't see uh, anything. And I didn't know how to operate that big tank that they had there. All the housing— And the lower housing was uh, connected to one big, uh, humongous uh, propane tank. And somehow somebody uh, walked in there and drained that. And we had nothing to do with it, and I don't know why they did that to us. Because we were separated from uh, the main area where the American Indian Movement sat, and we were way down in kind of northwest of there going to the next community called Manderson. So we were maybe uh, half a mile or so away from them. But somehow we ended up getting punished for all of that. And so after that, uh, it was living out of the basement. It was warmer down there. There was no way that we could heat the house. But the temperature stayed right around 51 to 56. And at night, it usually warmed up. So that wasn't too bad. But the upstairs was cold. And then uh, shooting was going on just about every night, every day. Then uh, eventually you could see a lot of the marshals just moving around from area to area. You knew where all their big machine guns were when they started firing at night, because they were using a lot of tracers. And it was actually a little war going on. And... uh, Uh, Nobody got hurt as far as I was concerned, or as far as uh, hearing anything about anybody getting hurt. But uh, things had become uh, very difficult in terms of uh, food, and so we tried to share as much as we could. We didn't even have tobacco to smoke anymore. And then... uh, uh, our neighbor across the street there, I knew him um, all my life. And then one evening, I remember this incident very clearly. This blue van showed up, just pulled into the front of his house. These guys jumped out. They kicked his door open. And they were gonna, from what I heard, they were going to shoot him. They were going to kill him. And they said they claimed that he was talking to the FBI on a shortwave radio. And I didn't even know he had a radio. But that's what they claimed. And when uh, they found he was gone. I guess he uh, ran out or he must have left. Uh, his wife was there. And uh, see, she was a good person. Well, as far as real content, everybody was a good person in Wounded Knee. That was the main thing about Wounded Knee. At one time, before the occupation of it, there was a lot of uh, respect a lot of honor, a lot of dignity and compassion for each other within the community and other communities within the reservation. But once uh, the takeover started and after it was over with, all of that stuff was destroyed just by uh, what some of these people uh, uh, who are part of the uh, Indian movement had done. You know, they talked Talk down on people. And then we began to hear uh, things about where these people were from. And they were what they would call the urban Indians. They grew up around Denver, Minneapolis. Uh, We call them the stragglers. They had no idea what uh, respect or honor or dignity. They had no idea what that was about. So they tried to imitate what some of the local people have, but it didn't work but in doing that, in the process of it, they destroyed a lot of the friendships or the family. Now, nah, family knowing each other's uh, uh, community as it was, they started to destroy that bits and pieces by rumors and telling lies about other people or what should be done or what, what the people should do. And They, they even used uh, some of the local people as human, human shields, And I've seen this, this even in that book, The 73 Occupational Woman, they they showed a bunch of uh, the elderly women who were going to meet up on a hill someplace with the marshals. So they had these four women walking in front of all of the so-called warriors. They had these four elderly women walking in front of them so they wouldn't be uh, shot at. And I didn't realize that till I was looking at that book. Then I remember these are human shields they're using, and they used our elderly as human shields. They got shot at, then the elderly people would have got hit. They would have been killed there. But they walked down the road up to where they were supposed to meet. And I think they uh, had a postponement of something, or the deadline, or something like that. But anyway, that stuff like that went on until uh, till the end of that place. And when my brother and I, we were able to get out. We knew, we knew where to go in order to get out. And some of the experience we had in the service, we used a lot of that. So when you shoot off a flare, you stand still. And they can't see you that way. You don't drop down on the ground. You just stand still and uh, not move during that time. Just small stuff like that. You knew your directions, you knew where you're going. And you knew all of the places where you can go along the creeks. So even the people on the inside of the wounded they come in and they couldn't see you. Or the marshals couldn't see you. So that uh, played in our favor. So we were able to get out sometimes would bring in food for our family and and that was it. What uh the sad part of it, they just completely destroyed Wounded Knee. I mean, they broke into all of the houses there. They stole a lot of the personal items that people had, you know, arts and crafts, beadwork, even old cast iron uh, tea kettles, cooking pots or uh, the Dutch oven type. They stole all of that stuff. Then they turned around and blamed the marshals. But the marshals weren't even in wounded me until after everybody left. By then, there was nothing left to wounded me. You... So even my mother's house was completely destroyed.
0: Oh, that's, that's what I—that's what I was going to ask you about. They, what what happened to that? Do you know? Uh,
1: they tore it apart. They used it to line some of the bunkers. In a, they did dig these big holes. And they had to have lumber to line uh, the outside of it so they could stay warm. And they just by accident, that we walked up to one of these uh, uh, bunkers that they had there, the American Indian Movement. We went in. And the first thing that I noticed was our uh, one room uh, heating stove. It was one of those older heating heating type stoves that was about uh, three feet tall. And uh, uh, we used that for heating. It was one of those older, had the silver uh, trimmings on it. And I noticed that sitting there because we used that. I don't know how many years. And when I looked at the wall, I seen, I recognized the lumber there. That was part of our house. The paint that uh, was there. It was a light green. And our house down below was just completely... uh, Cut it out. It was just flat on the ground, the roof, and then uh, little by little, that disappeared. Till eventually, all that left was left was just the foundation and a few boards in the floor. So that uh, that's how they destroyed uh, my mother's house.
0: Thank you, Walter. That was very insightful. You know, I was a young married woman at that time during the early 70s. I must say, I had relatives, I think, on almost every side of this aspect. I had some relatives that were affiliated with AIM and some that were affiliated with the so-called goons and even a federal investigator. And they were hard Times And at that time, there was a lot of discrimination against the Native American population here in South Dakota. And each person had their reasons for taking the stand that they did. But I wanted to share with you the impact it made on the people that lived down there by Wounded Knee and, and was in, lived in the village because it was something I had really never thought about much until I talked to Walter and found out he was from there. So I'm very thankful he was willing to share his story, and next week will be the end of the series of, of his thoughts. And Wopala, thank you for listening. Well, I hope you enjoyed our segment. You know, I, I enjoy visiting with the people. And if you did, go to sandyswallowgallery.com where you can find my artwork and find some history and some background. Please subscribe to it or if you have some comments, we would love to hear your opinion. This is a new adventure for us and I value your opinion. This song is written and sung by my good friend, Quincy Goodstar. Lakota Link is here to share Lakota values. God bless you on your journey. Wopila, thank you for joining us.